Welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode number 41, recorded March 5th, 2013, The Laughing God. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith and Unconditional Love Fellowship, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org or check out the new ministry website at unconditionallovefellowship.com. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, and I want to continue talking what we were talking about the last time we were together, which is this, and I'll say the word very carefully, this incredible joy of the Lord, joy which is the signature of every believer, but also the signature of the God who has brought us to rebirth. We, we, when we joy, we are expressing the very life of God. And I don't know um, where you are coming from in your past, among your ancestors. That expression that I've just used might be shocking to some. So, let's look at the laughing God who has brought us forth into new birth through Jesus Christ and dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And I want to look at um, a paragraph from a a story that I've spoken about, I don't know how many, hundreds of times in the last 60 plus years, and that's the prodigal son. I'm not going to talk about the prodigal son as such, but in chapter 15 of Luke, and uh, right at the end of the chapter, where Jesus, in his telling of this story, uh, has the confrontation between the elder brother and the father, who has left momentarily the celebration, the dancing, the joy over the return of the one we call the prodigal, and he goes out to the elder brother to beg him to come into the celebration. And in, in response, the elder brother insults his father, defies him. And so in verse 31, the father says to this elder brother, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. And it's that, specifically that last verse, we had to be merry, we had to rejoice. Okay, the words there, we had to, it depends entirely on the translation of this part of the Bible that you have, Um, there could be other translations. They all say the same thing. Uh, Everyone just tries to say it a little bit better. The actual word, if we simply translated it, would be necessary. And so we would read it. It is, or it has been, it has become necessary to be merry and rejoice. Uh, There are many Um, ways of saying the word necessary, and this is as good as any. We just had to, said the Father. We had to be merry and rejoice. We had to. 
um, if you read the whole chapter, when, when the shepherd finds the sheep, you remember what he says when he comes home with the sheep on his shoulder? He gathers his friends and his neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep which was lost. And, and so, right there, he is saying this sheep is is the object of my rejoicing. And I want everybody within the sound of my voice to join me in this celebration. And the woman in the second parable, when she found the coin, does the same thing. She gathers her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my coin which was lost. Now, in this final parable, you could say that that expression, rejoice with me, has escalated to these words. It's no longer rejoice with me. It now has got the added punch. He is saying it is necessary. We just had to do it. We must. Okay, look at this word for a moment, um, because it's really what I'm talking about, the necessity of the Father's heart to rejoice. This word necessity, necessary, had to. It means an urgent response to a certain situation. So something has happened and we have to make a response to it. And, okay, then you'd say it was necessary that we had this, that, the other response. We had to. Um, If you want to pull the word out, you would say we had to in the nature of the case. Uh, the, the way things were, we just had to do that. That's what the Father's saying. Or you could say necessary, it means it is the only right, it's the only proper and fitting thing to do. It was necessary. You see, and usually we use that word when someone's confronting us, saying, why did you do that? Well, it was the only right thing to do, you understand. It was the only proper, the only fitting thing that we could do. It was necessary. So necessary. It is something that must be done without question. Without question. This is beyond debate. We just had to do it. We had to. It was necessary. It's the only logical conclusion of what happened. What happened? We had to do this. And so the father is saying, your son, my son, your brother, he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. We just had to throw a feast and kill the fatted calf and dance and be merry. And so, that is the reason for this necessity. The return of the Son demands rejoicing. Now, we touched on this the last time we were together, rejoicing. Of course, it's an expansion of the word joy. It's often, often, often found in the Scripture along with gladness. Rejoice and be glad. 
um, joy and gladness of heart. And so all these words, they, they are brothers and sister words and they interlock and they overlap. But, but it comes out probably the biggest of them, the big brother of all those words is rejoicing. And, and it means a joy that is expressed. You, you, you can't be sitting in the corner with just a happy little smile on your face and call that rejoicing. It may be indeed joy, but rejoicing is joy that is expressed. Um, the, the, you could say rejoicing is not only that inner joy, but it is physical joy. It, it is a joy that is heard. You use your mouth and it's heard. And when I say heard, you've only got to read through the Psalms. My, my definitions here all come from the Psalms where, where it's pulled out and fleshed out. But, but in the Psalms, it's make a joyful noise to the Lord. Do you remember that one? Or shout to the Lord. I know this is all very upsetting to our silent sanctuaries where many of our brothers and sisters do their business with God. Um, and I, I love them, accept them, have preached for them. But if I'm going to talk about these biblical words, then the Bible many times gives its own definition. And so you, you will have this hearing of rejoicing. It's a, it's a demonstration. And so you could include, according to Scripture, singing. And as I've said, even shouting and making a joyful noise. It includes, read the Psalms, clapping, raising the hands. Um, it, it includes dancing and leaping for joy. It includes, and maybe all of this is overarched with laughter of sheer delight. And throw in a celebratory feast. Throw in, eat and Drink and dance and sing for joy. That's that's it. I I suppose I could spend the hour going through the scripture just showing you what this word means, but I think that will do. Um, rejoicing, it's the spilling over of heart delight. It's the inner joy rising into vocal, physical demonstration. So you could say, it's the sound of an extreme joy. It's the sound of delight. It's the sound of heart satisfaction. Rejoice. Could I, could I use this expression? It's pushing it, but it, I, it, it takes in what the scripture says. It's a volcanic eruption of joy and gladness. Or you could look at it as the, the vibrating energy of life and then of joy and then of peace. It, it's, it's that vibrating energy. And please, I, I'm just using that for what it means. Uh, with the broad healing to mind and emotions and body and wholeness and restoration of persons. In fact, when Proverbs speaks of laughter, he calls it the medicine of the heart. I know for some people, 
this is strange language when one has used a biblical text to begin with, but that's the fact. This whole dimension of our walk with God has been horribly neglected in this, the, these stories of Luke 15. As I said, the first two, they say, rejoice with me. And in this last one, when they're still out there, he's just met with, with the boy and embraced him. And and that's in verse 23. And, and the father says at that point, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry. And so did you notice that in both cases, the seeker uh, of the first two parables and the parent of the last parable cannot celebrate alone. Now that it comes through very definitely. I think I've made that point that here the um, father is um, telling everybody around, let us eat and be merry. Let us. It's us that has to do this. And um, so we are going to um, I'm sorry, I, I've got a problem with my clock here. Okay. Um, we are going to rejoice. Let us, let us. He, he cannot go to his room and just say, this is wonderful. He has to expand to everybody. Let us come together. Let us have a celebratory covenant meal, feast together. Let us be merry. Let us dance to the music of our hearts. And of course, in the other two cases, uh, rejoice with me. I am full of rejoicing, says the shepherd, says the woman. You come now and rejoice with me. That's the pictures here. We've all got to get involved. This is a corporate thing. It's a societal thing. Anyone that is being touched by what has happened, rejoice with me. Yeah. Now, do you, do you see what the father is saying? When he looks at his son, he does not see the mark of many years of living in such a way to nearly kill the boy. He doesn't see an aged face. He doesn't see the rags on his body. He doesn't see his skinny frame from lack of food, his bloodshot eye. He doesn't see that. He sees his son. Finally, the fulfillment of my heart's desire that has spanned the years to hold my son again. And he spills over just the side of his son. He sees through the disaster that the boy has become. He sees through the shame. And with joy that can hardly be expressed, he goes off in every direction, you know, clothe him, shoe him, put a ring on his hand, kill the fatty calf, call the people. We're having a feast. He couldn't, that was necessary. And when confronted by the elder brother, he's not apologizing. He said that this boy was dead to us. He'd gone, never to be seen again. And he's home. He was lost as a precious jewel, lost. My heart has been searching for him. 
And now he's found. (laughs) There there was no other thing to do. We had to rejoice. We had to. It's interesting. The prodigal son, this younger chap, why did he come home? Um, Of course, there's another message in answer to that fully. But what what awakened him? He's there in the far country. He's in the pit of misery. And not only so, but he's joined to a pig farmer, which of course to the Jewish people was to become an abomination. He couldn't get any lower. He's blinded to all that is true and right. And then he suddenly gets up and comes home. What what started that? Hear me carefully. He remembered something. He remembered an image of his father that he had forgotten up until that point. And it was an image of laughter. Hear me carefully. Maybe you'll have to read the story again. It was an image of laughter and celebration. He remembers when he was a lad how they had to have hired servants come on the ranch. Usually that would be in the springtime when they were sowing or in the fall when they were harvesting, whatever, when there was extra need for help on the farm. They they would call in hired servants. They were temps, if you like. They, they came in for the day, got paid by the day, and that was it. You worked, you took your money and left. Um, the, the, the rancher had no more responsibility than to pay them. But he remembers his dad. His dad was the most unusual rancher for, for these temporary, these strangers that had no call on him except today's pay, he had prepared a luncheon, and a luncheon that made the table groan under its weight. And he remembers the hired servants of my father. They had food enough and to spare. He's remembering a time when his father fed total strangers out of a grace because he was not bound to do what he did, a generosity that spilled over, and it was a feast, a feast where these strangers had to just push back and say, I couldn't eat another thing. And at such a feast, the sound of joy, the sound of merriment, persons well-fed, persons knowing they're accepted and appreciated and loved. And it was that memory, memory of the laughter, the celebration, the joy, the rejoicing that was common to his father. And he'd forgotten. And that was like the dawning of light, the first light of dawn in the dark night sky of his life. And that's when he said, I will arise and go back to my father. Yeah, you see, 
why did he why did he stay that long because he had an image of his father a very real image an imprinted image of his father but it was a total lie that that had spewed out of his own self for himself it was an image of his father as harsh um certainly condemning certainly judgmental certainly ready to punish and that had kept him there in the far country to shut out close the door to his father and anything that he would call home he was afraid to go back to his father afraid of rejection afraid of punishment afraid of the silent treatment because that was a total lie that's that wasn't his father but this character had entered into a faith union with the lie the illusion that he held in his head of his father and so even as on the one hand hope and his father's generosity was calling him back yet at the same time he's debating with this lying image in his mind of what he has come to declare is indeed his father a father that never existed but it existed in his head and so what does he do he he thinks and debates and has a conversation with his father in his head as he sits there with the pigs and in that he self condemns i'm no i'm a no good wretch i'm no good i'm no good i'm not worthy to be called your son i've sinned against heaven i've sinned against yeah 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 he lays it on self condemnation and then he he comes up with a punishment this would be a good idea to punish me make me as one of your hired servants and at least i could get in on the feast you see uh, what's this character doing i say he's clinging to that word of hope that came into his memory that had the sound of laughter and joy and generosity but in facing what he's going to do he begins a dialogue with a father that doesn't exist only in his imagination in which he feels that if he can beat his father to the punch if he can say to his father what a no good louse he is if he can suggest to his father a punishment then he'll sort of be ahead of the game it's all very sick it's very sad but but i i i see believers or would be believers do this all the time there there are some places of worship where every sunday at some time or another people go forward to do just this very thing and they whine and they cower before god i'm no good i'm guilty i failed you i'm miserable i'm a sinner i'm no good and then to to you know just if if i promise to pray more and read my bible more then 
no comprehension of who God is, no realization of the God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Just an imaginary God and a legalistic dialogue with their imagination. And so the chap goes home, or at least in the direction of home. And he's rehearsing the dialogue in his head. And then, suddenly, he hears up ahead of him. I mean, try and get inside this chap. Up ahead of him, he hears the whoop of uninhibited joy. He hears the roar of laughter interspersed with tears, obviously tears of joy. And he sees his father running toward him, holding up his long robe, all of which was most unbecoming for an old person in those days. But but the father is willing to be shamed and laughed at by people. He's running down the road and he can't contain himself. And when he gets to the boy who's standing there like he's seen a ghost, the father flings his arms around him to crack his ribs. He gives him a bear hug. And then says the scripture began to kiss him and kiss him and kiss him and kiss him all over. And the boy... I want you to understand this. Because love, God love does this to you. The laughter of God over you, his delight over you, does this, what it did to the boy. Suddenly, he's knocked completely off course. He's lost control of the situation. Did you understand? Uh, he ca- he, he's coming back to his father, but he's worked out a strategy that puts him in control of this whole lying imagination. Yeah, I'll say this and this and this. I'll beat him to the point. I'll tell him what a no good I am. And then we do this punishment. I'll become as a hired servant and I'll have an arm's length relationship to him. Yeah. He got it all tied up. He's in control of the situation. He's the one that determines how his father will think. He doesn't know his father. He's made up this father and he's determined this is how he will think and I'll say it ahead of him. He determines how his father is going to respond and tries to beat his father to the response. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we tra- Jesus was describing people here in their relationship to God. That They make up a God, and they assume that's how he thinks. He doesn't like me. He's mad at me. And so I'll have to say this, and I'll say that. And then we get, God bless them, evangelists that do the same thing and tell you to come and say all this stuff to the imaginary God. But it it leaves the prodigal in control. Do you understand? He, He can sort of relax into this very, very terrifying situation for him coming home. But he's in control, which is the name of sin. That's sin. Right there, at the beginning, Genesis, 
Satan said, you shall be as God. You'll be in control, you see. And you can control your relationship with God. You can tell God when he can love you. And you can tell him when he can't. When you've done something bad, he can't love you. He's got to punish you. You're in control, you see. And now I've said I'm sorry enough and I wept and cried and now you can love me. I'm in control. A very awkward situation has become sort of safe now. I'm in control. But now, he, if ever he was out of control, it's now his whole agenda of controlling this whatever's going to happen when he sees his father, it's collapsed. And how did it collapse and not just collapse, shattered to a thousand pieces? It was laughter that did it. It was rejoicing. It was a father laughing and weeping at the same time. It was joy as the father put a bear hug around him. And as those arms went around him, that, that wasn't in my plan. I, I, I don't know what to do with this. And the lips of his father covering his face and his neck. No, 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 I hadn't, I hadn't planned for this. I don't know what to do with this. It's an out of control situation for the boy. Please understand me. That's the beginning of salvation, to be out of control before this God. The God we thought we'd got him licked. We'd got, we'd, if I do this, he's got to do that. If I say this, he's got to, no, God just wipes it away with one great big laughter and says, my son, I didn't expect that. You see, he, the boy is going to, come back to his father, or at least to the vicinity, he's going to come home and essentially invite the father into his world of guilt, shame, and condemnation and an arm's length relationship. Do you understand that? The boy comes back and he's got his little plan in his head that's full of lies, distortions, illusions, and shadows, comes home to this father that doesn't exist, and he, he's, got, he's got control. I, I, I'm, here I am, father, and, and let's deal with guilt first. That's me, that's me, mea culpa, mea culpa, I am guilty. And I'm full of shame, no more worthy to be called your son. There he is, that's my world, and welcome into it, father. And I know you're going to condemn me. I know you're going to punish me. And so make me as one of your hired servants. Come welcome into my world. I invite you into my world. I mean, when you talk about it like that, what arrogance. And the father refuses. No, no, he didn't have to say no. He's just laughing with the tears and sometimes laughing till he cried. I, do you see the picture? His rejoicing hardly hears what this kid is saying because his agenda, love's agenda, is to bring his son into his world. And his world is one of forgiveness and reconciliation and acceptance. 
a world of rejoicing, a world of laughter and hugging and kissing. Do you see that? This is so important. The son comes home believing he's in control of the situation. It's a tough situation, but he believes he's in control. And he's going to invite his father into his wretched, miserable, sad, guilt, shame-ridden, punishing world. And he's telling the father that, you know, he can take his place and basically do what he's told. I hate to say it again, but I hear that. Hear it from the lips of believers over and over and over and over again. And the father's refusal is because he's laughing too much. He is rejoicing to the nth degree. And he brings the son into his world. Where there is no guilt. Where there is no shame. Where there is no punishment. Where instead he robes him and rings him and shoes him. And celebrates him. And tells the whole village it was necessary. We had to rejoice. Because the longing and the delight of my heart is finally in my arms. And this is all I ask for. And the son's illusionary father loses his form in his mind and imagination. In fact... The lying father that was in the boy's head disintegrates by the force of love, laughing as it took the boy in his arms. I I don't know what you're doing with this. This is one time when I wish I could see your eyes. Because so much that we call Christianity today has never gotten beyond, shall I dare to say, a lying pagan image of God. You see, all false gods, and I speak with experience, I've been around the world, I've visited with high leaders and priests of many religions, even to witch doctors, And I have come to the point of discussing as I'll tell you my faith, you tell me yours. So there's no threatening. And we've talked like two human beings. And I've realized wherever I touch down, whether it's in a highly civilized country or whether I'm sitting on dirt floors in Africa, false gods are very much the same. Though they have different names and different faces, but they have so much in common. They're always angry. Isn't that amazing? Pagan gods, they're always mean. And they're fickle. So what you thought they said today, they'll say something else tomorrow. You can never trust. You're always their victim. In fact, in many cases, they're terrifying because they're always on the verge of exploding in rage. They're cruel. 
Uh, that's, and I say, I speak that by having spoken to the leaders of religion and, and just simply ask them to share who is your God, what is he like, what does he do? And the fact is that in our Western world, essentially believers do not associate our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the only true God, but we don't associate him with laughter, do we? We don't associate the one and only true God revealed in Jesus. We don't associate him with hilarious joy and leaping and clapping and dancing and feasting. We don't. We've lost that realization of the truth of who God is. And we've lost him underneath the thick mud of legalism. Come on. I, if I go into many places that would bear the name Christian and talk about holiness, they expect me to talk about something that's an awfully solemn, very sad, very unsmiling, in fact, irritated by joy. Makes too much noise. Not realizing that holiness in the scripture is directly linked to rejoicing and laughter. How have we missed it? How come that we believe that God is irritated by joy? How, how, where did it come from that God frowns on clapping and laughing for sheer joy at his love. How come we thought that to be a holy person was to look like an undertaker's assistant? We're afraid of a laughing God. I, I think maybe it's because if we believe in a God who laughs for joy over us and calls us to laugh with him with sheer delight at his love and all that he has accomplished in us through Jesus, if we believe in that God, what has happened? The law has lost control. Oh, this gets is dangerous, you see. The law held you, held you in a vice that if you didn't do this and do that and not do that and not do that and not go there and not go here, then there would be punishment for that. And so you were held in fear. Oh, yes, the Bible says it's the whole oxygen of legalism is fear. It's the perfect, laughing love of God that casts out all fear. You see, the elder brother, and believe me, before I understood the love of God, before I grasped the love of God, I was very concerned about me because I felt 
a kinship with the elder brother. I did. When the elder brother said, all these years I have slaved for you and I've never done this, I've never done that, and yet you never did. I thought, yeah, the chap's got a point, you see. (laughs) But (laughs) with the elder brother, he would say, when he heard that his brother has come home, he would say it's appropriate or it is necessary in the nature of the case that we totally ignore him. Such a person, you ignore him. Do you have the expression here in the States? Give him the cold shoulder. Those in the UK know what that means. It's the silent treatment. Reject him. We're too good for him. The best I can say about him and the father, the father should summon him to the office, sit him down, tell him he's shamed the family, he's dragged our name in the mud. At best, give him a list of life rules so he won't do this again. Give a suitable punishment. That makes a lot of sense to our flesh. If you've never seen the love of God, you, you, as I at one time, will find a certain, yes, I, I understand where the elder brother is coming from. And of course, by extension, the real people Jesus was talking about, the Pharisees, I understand where they're coming from too. Because never, it, it's not in our natural thinking. Our flesh throws up arms in horror. Love? This is not time to love. It's not appropriate. uh, You're embarrassing me. Don't laugh. Not now. Look stern. Ask him what the heck he's doing coming home. Not accept him with no strings attached, with no punishment hanging on the end of it. Delight in him, welcome him, restore him. No, my flesh withers before such. You see, it was all in that laughter of God. And the boy totally out of control now. He, he's lost control of the situation. He doesn't know where this is going. All he knows, he's in his father's arms. And, and somewhere, because it doesn't spell it out in so many words, the actions speak much louder than words, but there's the dawning wonder as he hears his father say, you are my son, That, that blew out of the water what he'd come home to say. That's not what he thought his father would say. It's not what... You are my son. You were dead. You're alive again. You're a resurrected son. Given to me again. You were lost. But now... 
I've got you in my arms, you're found. And I'm laughing for joy, laughing for delight over you. The necessity of this moment says I crush you in my arms and laugh and cry and kiss and call for the biggest celebration the ranch has ever seen. Come, join my laughter. Laugh with me by celebrating. Rejoice with me. I found you. And somewhere in there, the prodigal trusted the laughter of his father. And by the fact he was in the celebration that followed, he trusted that laughter and began to laugh with his father. He, could I put it this way, he accepted his acceptance. He accepted his belovedness. And he laughs with his father's laugh, delights in such a father and delights in the love the father showers upon him. Yeah, that's, that's the gospel. And Jesus illustrated that on more than one occasion. This just happens to be, in my opinion, I've always returned to this chapter. This says it all. But as far back, do you remember in Numbers where the high priest of Israel gave the blessing of God? That is what they were to live in, this love in action blessing. Do you remember it? He said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Now, if you've been with us a long time, we spent time on that. But what it means is the radiant smile of God, the smile of God that's about to burst into laughter. His face shining. It's a Hebrew expression which means he takes delight in. Okay, in this parable, if we use that kind of language, the father's face shone upon his boy. That's in Numbers, right from the beginning of the Bible. This God that we worship through Jesus Christ is the one who says, I bless you. I empower you and strengthen you by my face shining upon you. And when this all began with Abraham, when faith was in infancy and in bud, what are the first words of faith as it buds in the birth of Isaac? Do you remember? Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Do you remember that? That's the beginning of the gospel that came to Abraham a good 2,000 years before Jesus came. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Isaac is born. And what does the word Isaac mean? Isaac means the sound of laughter. This whole 
purpose of God unfolded in history begins in hilarious laughter. Or as Job in his chapter 8, believe it's verse 21, speaking of this God, he said, He will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. And in the Psalm 126, and by the way, I could fill in a lot more blanks. I'm just picking one here and there. When the Lord brought back the captive to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we're filled with joy. Or when Isaiah prophesied of you and I, he said, they will enter Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. It will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Hear me, 750 years before Jesus came, Isaiah prophesied of us who would come to the ultimate Zion, the dwelling of God, praise and joy. And he says that when we come, when you believe upon Jesus, you will enter with singing. Everlasting joy will crown your heads. Gladness and joy will overtake you as if it was pursuing you. Sorrow and sighing will flee away, never to be seen again. The message, paraphrase of that verse in Isaiah, he said, the people of God will come back on this road, which um, that's the whole of Isaiah 36, 35. And it's speaking essentially of Jesus who said, I am the way, I'm the road. And he says, we'll come on that road. And they'll sing as they make their way home to Zion, unfading halos of joy encircling their heads. Welcomed home with gifts of joy and gladness as all sorrows and sighs scurry into the night. Yeah. In fact, and this is another message, and we probably will do it as we think about all of these things, but in Psalm number 2, if you take Psalm number 2 and then get a reference Bible and see where it's repeated in the New Testament, you will find that clearly in the New Testament, Psalm number 2 was seen as describing the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And right there at the top of Psalm 2, it says that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. And that, if you parallel to the New Testament, is the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was the pealing laughter of God echoing through the cosmos. Laughter. You could say the Holy Trinity danced and said we have achieved our end. Yes. Do you realize that joy, rejoicing, gladness, laughter is the serious business of the Holy Trinity? Oh, 
hear that laughter roll through your whole being when he says your sins are forgiven you. Yes, hear it. The laughter of God, he welcomes you. Your sins are forgiven you. Hear it. The laughter, the joy of God, he says, neither do I condemn you. Or he stands in the middle of our terror and he laughs and says, fear not for I am with you. He comes into our sickness, our disease, our pain and he says, be made whole. And the laughter of God runs through the cells of our body. And he flings open our future and he says, you're an heir of God. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, and we, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we will come and make our abode with you. We'll come and live with you. Oh, the laughter. And I pour over the bills. I pour over an empty refrigerator. I look at the clothes that need to be bought. And I hear his laughter. And he says, be anxious for nothing. Your father knows what things you have need of. The creative laughter of God dismantles all the lies that would give us that cruel pagan image of God. His love laughter dispels the darkness And his laughter is the resurrection life that raises us out from death itself. The prodigal, and I'll say the word carefully, he dared. (laughs) He dared to hear the laughter of God. Dared to hear the Holy Trinity laughter of joy. You see, once I hear that laughter, if you know what I mean, if you you hear this joy that vibrates from the scripture, then I'm no longer in control. I, 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 I find myself dismantled of control. I, I find myself, all I can do is say, you're, you're not like the God I thought you were, but I trust your laughter. I dare to laugh with you. Be it unto me according to your word. And we go on our way in the kingdom of God, which kingdom, says Romans 14, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, I trust I know this has shocked some people, but um, I know also it has brought a new revelation of who he really is and what our salvation really is. And um, let this joy get into your voice, your hands, your feet, and above all, from your innermost being. Let the joy of the Lord arise and be your strength. And be sure to share this with a lot of people. And now, the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
his joy. Be your portion this day, this week, and throughout the years of your life and unto the ages of ages. So I bless you and so it is. Amen.